Romans chapter 1. Join me please in prayer. Father, you are good uh, and your greatness is uh, inexhaustible. We're thankful that you have given us great glimpses of your majesty through what you've made, through what you've done, and through what you've revealed. We pray that you would help us to behold your glory as we study your word. We pray, Father, that we would be submitted to you, that your spirit would teach us, cause us to grow, help us to appreciate and apply those things that you have revealed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine that you are on the hunt for a computer, and you have been doing your research, but you're not an expert. So you study and look into things, and you get kind of lost in the weeds because you're not a technical expert. So you decide to go to the electronics store, You find an employee and start to ask him for some guidance. And to this he replies, we're a great location to buy a computer. We have a large, safe parking lot. We have kind, helpful, knowledgeable associates. Our customer service is top-notch. We offer the best and lowest cost warranties in the business. And our return policy can't be beat. Eventually, you start to say in your mind, okay, but what about the computer? I came here to ask you about the computer. That's why you were there. We must go to great lengths, brothers and sisters, in Jesus Christ. As a church, and individually, that our gospel ministry does not get caught up in the peripherals, we need to focus our attention, our efforts, and our actions upon the substance of the Gospel. And the substance of the Gospel is the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what we will discuss this morning because Paul, in his introduction of himself to the church at Rome, while telling a bit about himself, he speaks far more about the Lord than he does about himself, and he speaks about his mission, and that the mission is about the gospel of God that he was set apart for, and that that gospel of God was recorded before in the Holy Scriptures, and that gospel has its substance in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 3 it says this, concerning his son, that's a reference to the gospel of God, is concerning his son. And then there's a comma. You'll notice that comma. And then there are very important phrases. And then as you get to the end of verse 4, you'll see another comma. And it concludes, Jesus Christ our Lord. The gospel is about his son who is Jesus Christ our Lord. The emphasis, the substance of the gospel is the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's going to tell us some wonderful truths. We're going to start, we're going to read the passage again, verses 1 through 7, because we want to make sure that uh, we are familiar with what God has to say and not focused on what the spokesman has to say. Uh, In this instance, I am the spokesman. The word is what's important. So let's look again at what God says. Paul, 
a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he spoke, uh, me, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by the, His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul emphasizes the Lord Jesus Christ as the substance of the gospel, he promotes three aspects of our Savior's ministry. The first item uh, or aspect that he promotes is the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah. The Lord Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah. Take a look at verse 3 again. Concerning His Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. Now you'll remember the term Christ is the New Testament term for Old Testament Messiah. Messiah in the Hebrew language is Mashiach. Christ in the New Testament is Christos in the Greek language, and both of these terms mean anointed. And you'll remember there were three offices in the Old Testament that were anointed offices. That would be prophet, priest, and king. These three combined offices find their their, uh, ultimate outworking in one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the anointed one, the Mashiach, or the anointed one, the Christ. And it takes place in His flesh. Now, the Lord Jesus at all times has been God. At a point in history, He took on flesh. And as that anointed one, He is the Messiah, the one promised in the Old Testament. He is the substance of the Gospel. He's the promised Messiah. Take a look, please, at Second Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. You'll find that on page 259 if you're following along in one of our church Bibles. We're talking just for a moment about the fact that he is the descendant of David. And really the word there is the seed of David. That is The term in the Greek is sperma. I don't think any explanation needs to be brought forth on what that has to do with. The seed. He comes forth from. He's descended from David. We're talking about the promised Messiah. Now, as you think about this promised seed that has a rich history from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end, and I just want to give you just a a brief little synopsis for a couple of moments. First of all, the Lord Jesus, this Messiah, is the promised seed of the woman. We don't need to turn there. It's in Genesis chapter 3. God was going to put enmity between his His seed and her seed, between his offspring and her offspring. There was going to be a crushing of Satan's head and a and a crushing of the seed of the woman's heel. We know that to be the Lord Jesus having received that heel crushing, but at the same time crushing the head of the seed of the serpent. He's the promised seed of the woman. He's also the promised seed of Abraham. 
You can read about that in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, and really goes down to verse 7 and other passages of Scripture where God was going to bless all the nations of the earth through the seed of Abraham, and that seed finds its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. But specific to this text in Romans chapter 1, the promised seed of David is the concept that we need to discuss, and that's found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Take a look with me, please, in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, the context is David wants to build a house for the Lord. He wants to build a uh, habitation for the Lord, a place where, where he could be celebrated and worshipped there among the people. And God lets David know through the prophet Nathan that he had other arrangements in mind. So, Take a look with me at 2 Samuel 7 and verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. Now we know that the the house that came shortly thereafter in God's name was the temple built by Solomon, David's son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. Now there's even further uh, application even in that statement as, as, as shocking as it seems. When you read that, you're thinking Solomon, and you should. But when you're reading that, you should also think of the son of David that was to come who was going to be Discipline for iniquity that he himself did not commit. Remember, he became sin for us, though he knew no sin. And he was judged as sinful, though he sinned not. He stood in our place, receiving the judgment for our sin. And so don't just read Solomon there, though I think you should read Solomon there. You also see implications, but it gets even further and more specific about one who is certainly not Solomon, as you read a little further in verse 15. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, can David live forever? Can Solomon live forever? No, but there was a a son of David to come who does live forever, not only in his divinity as an eternal God, but in his flesh as raised from the dead, this one who came from the descendancy of David and lives on forevermore. Death has no more dominion over him. He has overcome death and he lives forever. And so we recognize the promised seed to sit on the Davidic throne. And we see that in Jeremiah many places. But, but I, I just had to select one. You have no idea how difficult that is to just say, oh, well, we're going to not touch that one, not touch that one, not touch that one. We'll, we'll settle on this one. This is a great synopsis to understand that Jesus is the promised seed to sit on the Davidic throne. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6 says this, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, 
when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness. Where? In the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord, our righteousness. The one who is on our behalf, righteousness. This is his name as the one who sits on the throne of David forever. This is why no flesh can glory in his presence. It's not, look at our righteousness, Lord. Look, look at what we have done in your name and look at what we've done on your behalf and look at how we deserve to come into your kingdom. No! The Lord, the substance of our righteousness. See, this is the gospel. Jesus is descendant, this, this one spoken of here, the, the Son of God who is the the substance of the gospel came in time and he is the descendant of David. And as that descendant, he is the promised Messiah. To fulfill these promises, the Son of God needed to take upon himself human flesh. Let's head back, please, to the book of Romans, chapter 1. A second aspect that Paul wants us to know about Jesus, who is the substance of the gospel is that the Lord Jesus Christ is the exalted head. The Lord Jesus Christ is the exalted head. We already read verse 3. Now we're in verse 4. And was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by His resurrection from the dead. This is Jesus Christ our Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ's resurrection, which was through the agency of the Holy Spirit, resulted in His appointment as the Son of God in power. Now our version has the word declared, and so do many versions. And I wish, I would feel happy if declared were the proper translation. However, if you were to follow the word declared, or the words, the Greek word here, you would find that it is not defined or translated as declared anywhere else, but rather appointed or something similar. Determined, appointed. Now, declared makes this very easy to understand. When Jesus rose from the dead, He was manifested to be the Son of God, by that powerful demonstration. But the fact that the word actually means appointed is a little bit different than that, and we have to try to understand it. Now we know that the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, is eternally the Son of God. This is true. Even during His earthly ministry, He claimed His position as the Son, And he demonstrated the power of God in his ministry. So we're very clear about this. So the resurrection didn't make him the son of God. Not in any stretch of the imagination. During the days of his incarnation, the Lord Jesus Christ, ready for this? You're familiar with this expression. 
emptied himself, Philippians chapter 2. The question is, what did he empty himself of? Do not, do not, do not mistakenly state. It can happen. It just slips, slips. Don't mistakenly say he emptied himself of his divinity. That would be inaccurate. What he did empty himself of, in my strong opinion, is the free exercise of his divine attributes. The free exercise of his divine attributes. He he is God eternally. The Lord Jesus Christ is God made flesh. He tabernacled among us. We beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The, The Son of God who is in the bosom of the Father, he is the one who declares him. So the Lord Jesus Christ is from the beginning the Word, and he was with God, and he was God. He created all things. We, we know all of these passages. We're not saying that Jesus became the Son of God at any point in history. He is eternally the Son of God. What we have to understand is that at the resurrection, He was appointed as the Son of God in power. The Son of God in power. At the resurrection, the Lord Jesus, as you're familiar, received, was given an exalted name. An exalted name. Now in Philippians 2, you know verses 5 through 8. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And he goes on and talks about how he was not, he didn't count it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of a reputation, taking upon himself the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men. In, in that way, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. We're familiar with verses 5 through 8. You're also familiar with what comes on its heels. The, the Lord Jesus emptying himself of his free exercise of his divine attributes. In other words, he didn't unilaterally make decisions. What he received of his Father, that he did. We see those statements all through the Gospels. We see him saying, only the Father knows the appointed time. Well, Jesus is God. He knows everything. Well, in the emptying of himself, he did not take upon himself the free exercise of those divine attributes. So, yes, in Jesus' being, he knows. In his entity as the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm trying to tread very carefully about my usage of words here, he emptied himself of the free usage of that information. It's very incredible. It's, it's just amazing. This is the, some of the challenges that come with the hyperstatic union, the, the union of God the Father, union of, of the Son of God and man. It's, it's amazing. So nonetheless, he emptied himself. He's obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And then it says in verses 9 through 11, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him. He gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now if you follow this into its Old Testament usage in the book of Isaiah, you'll find out that God is talking about the fact that the, this Lordship, this Yahweh, is to the glory of of the Father. And so the Lord Jesus is given this position as Lord, exalted name, the name above every name. He is the 
ineffable tetragrammaton. I always like to use that one every now and then just to throw you off. It's the unspeakable four-letter word, Yahweh, given this name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This was granted to him at the resurrection. Now, moving a little further, not only was he given this exalted name, he was given as the God-man an exalted position. We have to see this in the book of Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. You'll find that on page 976. You're in Romans. You're going to go through First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. In this prayer from Paul to God on behalf of the Ephesian believers, he wants them to know three important things. Their inheritance. He wants them to know their calling. And then he wants them to know the power of God on their behalf. Okay, those are the three things. You can read it and figure it out later on in verses 18 and 19. We're going to rip right into the middle of it at verse 19, that third item. He wants them to know the power of God on their behalf. But when he describes the power of God on their behalf, he doesn't actually tell them what the power of God on their behalf is until chapter 2. But in chapter 1, he illustrates the kind of power that is God's power on their behalf that he wants them to know. That's the subject, is that power, the power of God. Because remember, at the resurrection, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God, or appointed to be the Son of God in power. And we have to understand what that power is referring to. We've seen him in the exalted name. Now we want to see him in the exalted position. Verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. So stop right there for just a moment. At Jesus seated at the right hand, theologians call this period of time where Jesus is seated at the right hand until his enemy becomes his footstool. They call it the session of Jesus Christ. He's in session. He's seated there. One day he's coming back and the head of Satan will be permanently, finally crushed and the kingdom will be permanently, finally ushered in, and the glorious consummation of all the ages, permanently and finally ushered in. Glorious. But the session, in between now and then, he's at the right hand of God, he is in a position of power. It says here, verse 21, how powerful is it? Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he, God, put all things under his Jesus' feet and gave him, Jesus, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The Lord Jesus at the resurrection, not only given this name above all names, exalted to the highest name, the Yahweh Lord, he's also exalted to the highest position, far above every name named. There's no powerful deity, entity on the face of the earth, in the universe, anywhere, ever that usurps the authority that has been granted to Jesus Christ, appointed to him as the Son of God who's been raised by the Holy Spirit. Glorious. 
Jesus raised in, in life and granted the position of eternal, glorious, beautiful power. He resides, our Savior does. He resides in power. Take a look, please. You're going to turn to the right to Philippians chapter 3. Let me just, as you're turning, whisper in your ear for a moment. We're talking about these things because Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the substance of the Gospel. This is the fascination that should fill our minds. It's the fascination that should come from our lips. It's the way that should, we should navigate through our lives. It, how we orchestrate our worship. How we orchestrate our Bible studies. How we orchestrate how the church functions should all be based upon the substance that Jesus reigns. Does He reign over you? Does He reign over your thoughts? Does he reign over your tongue? Does he reign over your actions? Jesus, the name above all names, placed above every name. He is the exalted head of his church, which means he's my exalted This has implications for every second of our lives. Good implications. Glorious implications. We're in Philippians chapter 3. When our mind is set aright, when our gaze is where it ought to be, we're looking up. In Philippians 3, in verse 20, The Bible says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior. Who is this Savior? The Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by what? The power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Jesus resides right now and forever in power. In power. That power subjects all things to himself ultimately. And one day, every element of my being will come into perfect subjection to him. This is the hope, the confident expectation of the believer in Jesus Christ. Take a look, please, at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. This is called a sermon within a sermon. And what I mean by that is we're going to read Peter's sermon in the midst of this sermon this morning. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 22, speaking of the Lord Jesus. Of course, that is the subject because the apostles were always going about proving that Jesus is the Christ. That Jesus' death was sufficient that Jesus was appointed, determined by God to be the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the earth. This was their message continuously. Acts chapter 2 and verse 22. 
Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart uh, was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted to the right hand of God. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for what certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. This is the, the message. This is the sermon that Jesus is the exalted head. He is both Lord and he is the Christ, the promised one. So what Peter does here, talking about Jesus' exalted name and his fulfillment of prophecy, is very similar to how Paul starts the book of Romans. He wants us to know that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of God. And that at the resurrection, he was declared to be the Son of God in power. And that's what we recognize. As our exalted head, he reigns supremely. By implication and application, we must submit to him. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. In everything. That's Monday morning. And that's Friday night and Saturday night. That's Sunday morning. That's Wednesday at noon. In everything he might be preeminent. He reigns supremely. He's been given that exalted position and that exalted name Take a look, please, at Colossians chapter 3. When we are actively submitted to him, what we're going to see in Colossians 3, I'm going to make these points, then we'll look at it in the text. When we are actively submitted to him, his love and peace will rule over us. When we are actively submitted to him, 
His word will dwell within us richly. And when we are actively submitted to him, we will live our lives as his servants. Take a look, please, at the text. We want to see what God says. Colossians 3, 14. And above all these, put on love. That's a command. Which binds together, or everything, binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let, that's a, here's a technical term for you. Ready for this? That's a hortatory subjunctive. Write that one down later and give, give me like an extra coffee for that one. <laughs> Let the peace of Christ, that's a polite command. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing praises and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Verse 23, And whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. See, he's our exalted head. And so everything we do comes underneath that. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks, dessert, sweeping the floor, washing the windows, washing the car, going to work, coming home from work. The way you deal with your wife, the way you deal with your husband, the way you deal with your kids, the way you deal with your parents, all of this comes under the lordship of Jesus Christ. You and I, we've been bought with a price. He's the exalted head. Is he your exalted head? Does he have a right to call you to act in a way that demonstrates he's your exalted head? Of course he does. You know, the good news is, that that's good news too. The, the good news is, in the, the, the struggle and the striving to try to do what God's called us to do, he doesn't leave us to our own resources. Because if he did, we would struggle and fail continuously. Even as it is, with the proper resource, we struggle and fail. Imagine if he left us alone. He doesn't. He has given to us his spirit who dwells within us. And so it's incumbent upon us to recognize when I am not allowing Jesus to rule over me as he does indeed, he in fact does rule over me whether I acknowledge it or not or act it or not, he does rule over me, but I place myself willingly under his sovereign authority. I want him to rule over me and I need his spirit to enable his glorious grace within me to do what he's called me to do. We apply it every second of every day. We're talking about the aspects of how Paul is presenting the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've recognized that the Lord Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah. He is the uh, exalted head. And now as we come to the last item, as we head back to Romans chapter 1, we want to recognize that the Lord Jesus Christ is the commissioning Savior. He is the commissioning Savior. We're back in Romans chapter 1, and we're just going to take a couple of moments for for this. We come to verse 5, and the Bible says this, through whom, speaking of Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace 
and apostleship. Well, first of all, he says, through whom we have received. Well, who's the we? Well, I think he's using an authorial we, which is kind of like a royal we, or a majestic plural. It is not a French we. That's a different we altogether. But you know what the royal we is? Like someone saying, yeah, and we, but he's really talking about himself. He's saying, God has commissioned me. He's given me grace and apostleship. That's the the, the concept. He's not actually saying, you know, we have received grace and apostleship, though in a certain sense, by implication, that is also true, but that's not what he's getting at. He's talking about himself having received this. Remember what he's saying is, Paul, a servant, and he goes on and describes all these things. He's received this call, and now he's writing to you, the ones who belong to God, the ones who belong to Jesus Christ, those who, to whom he's giving grace and apostleship, or grace, excuse me, grace and mercy from the, from the Lord. He's talking about himself. Paul has been granted both grace and apostleship. So you can read that one of two ways. You can, he's received salvation and apostleship, or you can read it as this, enablement and commission. And I prefer the latter. Enablement and commission. He's received grace for what God has called him to do. Based upon a parallel text, Ephesians 3, which we don't have time to talk about, um, just make reference to, in Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 13, I think it's very clear that he's referring to the fact that God enables everything he calls us to do. Or you can state it this way, what God calls for, he provides the necessary grace to accomplish. And I think that's what Paul is getting at. God has called me by his grace, he's enabled me by his grace, and he's given me this commission as an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's why I'm coming to you. I'm coming to you not of my own authority. I'm coming to you not of my own power. I'm coming to you with the authority of God because he commissioned me. And I'm coming to you with the authority of God and the power of God because he's given me grace to do this. He's, He's constantly deflecting away from himself. I want you to keep that in mind. I I need to keep that in mind. Ministry, church ministry, gospel ministry, ministry uh, that is related to God is a selfless ministry. It's not about exalting ourselves, telling people how wonderful we are. I need your accolades. I need your compliments. I need your this. I need your... No. Paul is constantly saying, this is about the Lord and what God has done. That's what true gospel Bible ministry does. Points the attention God's way. That's our call. By implication, we can apply this. Uh, We have been called into the service of the Lord Jesus Christ, our exalted head. We must recognize that we are dealing with matters of eternal life. Do you know that? We're dealing with matters of eternal life in our preaching and living of the gospel. Now, this is both individual and corporate. Individual and church body-wide. We are involved in God's eternal purposes that cannot fail. You are not fighting a losing battle. You're fighting on the side of the one who will win the victory. We are living under His majestic power. We are preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ. We have received this Um, opportunity. It's the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. And we hold this power, this ministry, in earthen vessels that the glory might not be of us, but of Him who made us.
God has told us that the Lord Jesus Christ is the substance of the gospel. Our church ministry, our missions philosophy, our worship service set up, our preaching, our outreach ministries, and our personal evangelistic efforts should never be pressing the peripherals. It's not about having comfortable seats, though we like them, nice shiny floors, though that's helpful, screens that usually work, that's great, a beautiful back wall here that was worked diligently on, great instruments to help facilitate microphones that carry the song, you know, sound out, cameras in the front or the back of the church, broadcasting, all these things, they're peripheral. They're great. Let's do it well. Let's do it the best we can. That is not the substance. You can go out in the field over here, in the leaves or out of the leaves, and we can have gospel ministry because the substance is not the building. The substance is not the devices. The substance is Christ. He's not going anywhere. Right now, he sits at the Father's right hand and he's waiting until his enemies are made his footstool for his feet. And one day, he will descend from heaven and bring about the consummation of the ages. The kingdom will come to the earth. The earth will be re-energized, reconstituted. A lot of doctrinal things that we're skipping over in this uh, summary of eschatology, leaving out a lot of details. What the bottom line is, the big picture is, Jesus reigns now. One day He will reign visibly on the earth, universally, over all. That day is coming. The substance of the gospel that we live the substance of the gospel that we preach, the substance of the gospel that is the vehicle through which we come to know God and live our lives and worship God. The substance is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's everything. So that we are faithful to this Christ-focused gospel emphasis, we're going to conclude our worship in the Word by hearing how God, through Paul, simply states the gospel. Listen, listen to the gospel. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and on the third day He was raised in accordance with the Scriptures. Let's pray. Father, Your gospel astounds us 
because you astound us in your wonderful, lavish grace, your inexhaustible mercy, and your boundless love. Help us to worship you as we ought for your glory's sake. I pray, Father, for each believer that we would be refreshed by your good gospel. And Father, we also pray for anyone among us that does not know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, does not have this abundance of joy knowing about the future. We pray that you, through your Spirit, in accordance with your Word, would bring about an understanding. You would illuminate their minds and call them to repent of their sin and to turn to Jesus Christ and to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and be saved. We know you can do this. We pray, Father, that even in this moment you would, for your glory's sake and the good of our dear friend, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.